WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is the writer of the new Image Top Cow series, Haunt You to the End, Ryan Katie. Welcome, Ryan. Hello. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So what are some of the first comics that you remember reading? Ooh, um, good question. Uh, you know, my dad was a big late 80s, early 90s Marvel guy. Um, and so his, especially obviously the X-Men stuff of that era, was always just kind of lying around. Um, and I very much remember picking up that and him trying to explain Infinity Gauntlet to me. And I was like into it, but he was like, he couldn't remember and he had the issues out of order. Um, but I think for me, my my real early one uh, is uh, Walt Simonson's Thor. Like the Simonson Ooh. Thor run is, is very key for me. I, I, I love that shit. I love Beta Ray Bill. Um, I love all the really... I love when it's even really, really in its own head with Asgard stuff and just doing tons of like mythology stuff. Like I'm a sucker for that. It, it really blew me away. Um, and I was really young being like, oh yeah, you can sci-fi and fantasy. What? So <laughs> that's a big one for me, for sure. That's a, that's a huh. rad one to start on. You know, you, 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 every once in a while we get the guy who's like, oh, my, you know, my parents gave me their long box and it was like, oh, it's the entire Claremont run of Uncanny X-Men. It's very rare you get like the Simonson Thor. So that that's nice. I I very specifically remember uh, well, one of my uh, uh, one of my friends in, in school when I was really young, he was like. <laughs> he was very proud of his quote unquote Viking heritage. And he was like telling me all these stories and getting me excited about it. And I was like, what, what is all this stuff? Where'd you learn it? Like, what's it from? And I came over to his house one day and he just hands me a bunch of Simons and Thor. And he's like, but it's based on the real mythology, man. This is what it's about. <laughs> um, and that's like, that's how I got started on that. And I was just like devouring that. Um, so, you know, kind of, kind of uh, dorky, but like rad, I guess, which is, uh, sort of i think the sweet spot with a sort of cosmic sci-fi fantasy story it should be uh a little bit silly enough for like young kids to appreciate with each other and be like hey is this based on real mythology i think it is there's a horseman right <laughs> and volstog the voluminous don't forget him <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, Thor, Frog, Thor, definitely uh, in in the uh, the real mythology. Throg, I guess, to work. You know that that works better for 1980s Marvel than the time that Loki dressed Thor in drag and had him marry one of the Frost Giants to get Mjolnir back. That would not have flown. Would not, <laughs> and yet more historically accurate. You know, the revisionists these days. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, you know that. And then I, um, I really, uh, in high school, I was really into anime and manga. And I got kind of more, more, way more into that side of things. Um, although I was, you know, obviously when the DCAU stuff started, the DC animated, all that was like, I, I was like hooked on every version of that at all that I could find my hands on. And, and those really cemented that universe for me and those characters. And I, you know, I was reading books where I could find them and picking them up and, you know, every once in a while going collected editions. I, I think maybe because of the manga influence with a lot of my friends and my friend group, we were probably more inclined to do trade paperbacks because mm -hmm. I, I know I swore off single issues for a while when I was uh, like in high school and middle school. Um, but I don't know. Maybe that's common. I don't know. 
I guess I like I like to say I like to joke that I am a new 52 success story. Um, you know, I, I, I know that's like facetious uh, and like lots of people have uh, like different takes on. Yeah, I, I get I get why new 52 is controversial, why certain stuff people don't like, but it's what really got my friends and me collecting single issues again. And if we hadn't done that, I, I don't think I don't know if I would have pursued this industry with like the relentless passion necessary it takes to survive in it. You know, um, I, I think I might have been like, oh, comics are cool. That's really awesome. I love this stuff. But I wouldn't have been like, this is the art I need to create if we hadn't been so, so like rabid when I was uh, like just leaving high school and starting college. And and now you're here to talk about Haunt You to the End, which is your new Image Top Cow series with artist Andrea Muti and literary Frank Svekovic. Uh, issue one is out now. Issue two is uh, scheduled for release July 12th. Matt, it's a horror book, so bust out those golden pies, buddy. In a not-so-far future, rife with climate disasters and worldwide instability, mm. an eccentric billionaire and his crew a disgraced journalist, a radical doctor, a TV demonologist, and a squad of hard-bitten military contractors set out to prove the existence of life after death. But even if their mission is a success, the truth behind the most haunted place on Earth may not be the comforting revelation the world is hoping for. Ooh. You know, if we ever get adapted, you can you I'll make sure you do the trailer voiceover. That was <laughs> a plus, man. I'm Thank like, Did you. I write that? what? <laughs> and I'm glad it was not so far future versus not so distant future, because anytime I read not so distant future, my head goes Sunday 80. La la la. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I uh you know, as much as I love MSG3K, probably not the best association for my no. spooky horror book. Not for this one. No. <laughs> so how was your release week, first of all? You know, it was really great. Thank you for asking. Uh, you know, I, I, it's it's obviously for a lot of people, I'm sure, me included, a stressful time. Uh, and, you know, you're you're doing so much like aggressive promotion and and freaking out about making sure that you've done every possible thing you have you can to make the release week ideal and uh it it, it went off really great but it's, it's also nice to have someone be like is your release week going well are you having a good one um but no it was really awesome you know we did a couple signings people have been like really really nice about the book i'm, I'm so glad to see it getting out there and, and have uh you know talking to folks about it um you know, it was really nice to, I did a few signings in Southern California with Sozo Micah, who did our variant cover for us. And it was, it was really cool to sort of like meet some of her fans and bring them in uh, as well and just sort of get out there and, and meet with people. It's nice. I haven't done a creator-owned release in a while. So, uh, so what is, what is the origin of this project? Uh, you know, after Infinite Dark, uh, which Andrea Mucci and I did uh, together at Top Cow as well. We kind of always kept in touch and every time he had a gap in his schedule or I had a gap in my schedule, he'd be like, hey, is there anything? And, you know, we'd either throw out stuff that didn't either connect with each other or we just like the schedules wouldn't line up. And then, you know, uh, last year he sent me some new stuff. He was just like, hey, here's what I've been doing. And it was is this uh, a lot of the Aftershock and Dark Horse stuff he'd been doing with that new watercolor approach. And I just sort of was like. I didn't realize minutes had passed that I was just like scrolling through the art. And I was just like, 
okay, well, we, we gotta, I, we gotta put something together. Like we have to get back together again. Like I have to come <laughs> up with something for you. Um, and, and so right away I was like, okay, it's so muddy and washed out and, and moody and like liquid and alive. And I was just like, the, I just remember thinking it was like a Sunday night and it was late and he was DMing me on Twitter about it. And he was like <laughs> sending me JPEGs faster than I could actually like read them. So I'd have to go back and reopen the app. And I'm looking at him and I just kept thinking, weather, man, we have to do something with weather. Um, <laughs> and because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just like uh, a horror freak who's obsessed with death. I was like, what goes good with weather? You know, um, I guess ghosts, uh, ghosts and weather makes sense. And uh, then it was just off to the races. Uh, you know, one thing I wanted wanted to ask is, you know, how first of all, how are you able to secure a hole in that guy's schedule? Because he gets around. He is a monster. He has the speed force and is like running circles around all of us. I... <laughs> He, you know, uh, I've, I also, I've worked a lot with Stephen Sedgwick, who is by many considered to be one of the fastest in the business. Uh, I, you know, I've seen Andrea turn around pages at a rate that rivals Stephen, which is like even more impressive in some, in some ways when you think about him, like, just like sitting there with like, and all these pages and doing the watercolors and doing actual pencil and throwing the inks in and splatter. Uh, and, and with this style, especially, he gets really haphazard with it. He'll like, you know, do one panel on one scrap of paper and then he'll have another full like image board that he's doing the rest of the page on and kind of just like tape them together or like paint them together. It's it's like watching like a, a, a sort of like crazed professional artist trope just sort of working in a movie. It's awesome. Um, and yeah, I guess he's just he i i'm trying to think i don't know for sure what books he's also working on but he he's a two at a time guy he's he is definitely working on uh, at least one other project while where we're going so like trading back and forth it's it's insane it's really impressive and and everything so like the not and not just pencils and inks that he's doing the whole shebang digitally i i mean when he sends me these finished pages i'm i'm just blown over i uh sometimes i i joke um and then top Editorial gets mad at me when i make this joke but sometimes i joke what if i just like don't do any lettering or phone it in like people will get the story right it just looks so good i <laughs> i don't want to mess it up with my words uh he, he really I, I can't believe he's turning it around this quick when it looks this good i i just feel uh i really lucky to to be, get to work with him you gotta work on that upcoming silent issue definitely yeah, yeah exactly we can we can we can like pizza dog a hawkeye but really really upsetting you know like maybe some uh, ripped off limbs doing the sign language. I don't know. There's something there. <laughs> also, I'm going to date myself because instead of a hawk, uh, pizza dog Hawkeye issue, I was going to go G.I. Joe 40, whatever. <laughs> Silent oh, interlude. Yeah. I'm not a big G.I. Joe guy. Which one is Was that? That's. Oh, wait a minute. I think I've heard. I think I've seen this. Obviously, it's it's Larry, right? Obviously. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. The one's yeah, in the future yeah. G.I. Joe. Right? Snake Eyes issue. I'm not a big G.I. Joe guy either, but that is one of those. I'm sure it wasn't, it is obviously not the first silent comic, but it's probably the first silent comic from the big two. Sure. And like with, with that, like overt artistic intent of like, I'm going to really like explore the medium to its fullest. Like that, that's awesome. What? I mean, I'll just Google it again. I, I definitely scrolled through it before, but I would love to take another look at that. The, the comic opens with a quote from Stanley Kubrick to Stephen King on the set of The Shining which I thought was interesting because a it's a it's thematic to the text, obviously, 
but B, King notoriously hated Kubrick's adaptation to the point where he produced his own and was like, this TV movie miniseries version starring Steven Weber from Wings? This is the version of The Shining you should be watching. This is perfect. Uh, it, well, okay, I'm I'm a big King guy, uh, mm. obviously. Um, I, I I don't know how much his influence is felt, uh, but, you know, I there's some uh, joke tweet going around that was like, I figured out what's wrong with Gen X. They all read a Stephen King book way too young, and it just turned them into this. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and like, I, I remember I, I started reading King books in like fifth or sixth grade, and I was like really diving in, but... Uh, that quote in particular, uh, I've kind of I learned about that only really recently because I've been trying to to go back and study a lot of movie stuff. Um, but uh, I, I came across that quote and I was like, oh man, like this is exactly how I always feel. This is why why ghost stories, as much as I love them, don't scare me like other horror stuff does. I love this. I love this. I was so enamored and I looked into it more and I learned that, <laughs> that Stephen King's response to that was, "What the heck are you talking about? <laughs> like, what about hell?" <laughs> yeah exactly what about hell that's right and it's like well you know <laughs> but I, yes but also the the idea of an afterlife i think it, it is so like inherently optimistic and and i i found that very striking and as much as uh yes what about hell absolutely and also you know every, every horrible stephen king take but i i just love to picture as uh, you know as much as i love king and a lot of his work uh kubrick sort of like coming to him on the phone with this sort of really interesting take on the text and his embrace of it and king just like i just picture him staring at the phone dumbfounded like this guy doesn't get it at all <laughs> uh they're both right ah drives me crazy uh but yeah so that's sort of my um i don't know how how uh overt it's coming across how death obsessed i am uh but yeah i i when i read that quote i think we were we were, we had maybe, I, Andrea had maybe started pencils on the first issue. And I was just, I happened to come across that and get into it. And I was like, oh, this is so thematically relevant to what we're doing and working and, and how I sort of feel about this medium and approach it. And I, I want, I, you know, I feel like many, several characters in the book have that opinion of, you know, ghost stories and, and the afterlife and stuff. So I really wanted to sort of uh, use that as sort of a, a, a thematic motif where I could. All right, Matt, while we're on the subject, pros and cons of the Shining TV movie miniseries. Ooh, yeah. All right. And Matt, by the way, Matt is that Gen Xer who read a Stephen King book way too young. Oh, well, yeah. What was what was yours, Matt? What was your uh, first? Well, I made the, the Herculean error in many ways of trying to start with The Stand. Oh, wow. was yeah. not the way to go. Because Abrupt The Stand TV man. movie. Yeah, The Stand movie, TV movie had come out and my parents would not let me watch the movie, but they didn't police what I took home from the library. So, right. But I started it, had a, like got a little ways into it and then had school reading. But the first, this was the summer in between eighth grade and high school for me. Okay. But for high school, the first book that the entire freshman class was given was King's eyes of the dragon. Well, okay, so that's my first as well. I don't why are, why is there this assumption that that's a kids book? Yeah, it is not. It's not. <laughs> no. <laughs> but but having then read that, I went back into the stand and from there it was off to the races and all I read for the next year and a half to 2 years, no longer than that, 2 to 2 to 3 
years with Stephen King just reading everything that he had released by that point. Yeah, I mean, but, you could catch up for weeks just on those paperbacks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I, weeks, years. <laughs> yeah, going to the, I would go to the library and go to their, like, paperbacks that were falling apart because people had read them too much, and now they were selling them for 50 cents <laughs> each. And I just bought, anytime there was King, I would just take it home with me. And I, I still have these beaten, dog-eared copies of classic King that someday I'll replace with nice hardcovers. But for the moment, it's nice to have these ones that, I first read that smell like used books. Yeah, you come across a place where somebody, it's clearly been dog-eared more than once, and you're like, oh, why do other people stop here? What's going on? You know, Yeah, exactly, uh -huh. exactly. So, The Shining TV movie is a more faithful adaptation of King's book. <laughs> Kubrick is a master director. His movie is stylish. His movie tells the story that Kubrick wanted to tell. I have a big soft spot for all of those 90s into the early aughts King TV miniseries. It, the Tommyknockers, the Stand, Shining, Salem's Lot, uh, Langoliers, Storm of the Century, Rose Red, the last two, the original ones. I think it it suffers because the Kubrick version came out first. Hmm. People more fondly remember the Tim Curry it, granted because it is better than this adaptation of The Shining, but people more fondly remember that because it came before the Machete adaptation of a few years ago. If we had had a big screen, big budget, it before they tried the TV version. I don't know if that one would be as fondly remembered. I mean, granted, Tim Curry, and <laughs> but but he's most of it though. You're right. I, I I don't I don't know if I could disagree with you there. I, th I think you're probably onto something because as as much as again we all love Tim Curry, it, that is all anybody we really say about that run that series. Interesting. The, and speaking of, the, I will also point out that. Uh, Stephen Weber is the Wings brother who had the lesser of King adaptations or King TV movies because Tim Daly starred in Storm of the Century, which was an original screenplay miniseries right. that is considerably better than The Shining or than most of them because it is this very insular, very claustrophobic written for the budget of a TV miniseries. Mm -hmm. It gets forgotten, but is really quite good and is another one of those ones that has tangential ties to the Dark Tower. Oh, Storm of the Century does? I don't remember that at all. I awesome. vaguely have this feeling like somewhere in there, Linoge is one of, the, the villain is one of those things that serves the Crimson King of the Tower. Dope. I don't okay. think they make it explicit, but I think there are hints about yeah. you know, the, the the beam or something like that somewhere in there. Or it might be headcanon to me, but it just logically makes sense that he's there with Leland Gaunt and Flag and all these other things mm -hmm. that 
have some connection to the Crimson King and the things trying to bring down the tower. Yeah, that also. I man, I I gotta go back. I haven't watched that since it came out with TNT. I think uh, that and and Rose Red too. I don't think yep. I've rewatched either of those. And I I those might be worth the uh, go back. Rose Red definitely is. I watched. I mean, it's probably been a decade, but that is at least the second or third watch on it. Because it had a couple of actors that my wife is a big fan of. And like, oh, you've never seen this thing? She's like, no, I don't watch horror. It's like, no, but you'll really like this. <laughs> and I was right. Jeez, you're forgiving me, right, love? <laughs> I got the thumbs up. All right. Um, still haven't gotten the forgiveness for uh, The Mist, though. <laughs> wow. Well, especially the that ending. Uh, yeah, I... Um, yeah. Uh, I remember, well, I was, I, I you know, I, I, I used to be such a, as I'm sure a lot of people that used to be such a, a purist, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a text purist anymore. I'm really pro a lot of adaptation. But when the Mist movie came out, I was like a hardliner. And that ending was like, what, Frank, what have you done? What have you done? Uh, the ambiguity of the short story is better. Uh, <laughs> also, so horrifying, so bleak for nobody, people who just couldn't have seen it coming or were convinced it was going to go the other way, right? Oof. For the guy who did, you know, Shawshank Redemption and Green Mile, which was a hopeful King adaptation, yes. to go right into the mist, which is far and away Ooh. the bleakest. Oh! Yeah, heavy stuff. Yeah. So, King aside, what are, what are some of your other per personal uh, horror touchstones there? Um, well, uh, Haunted House, obviously, the original Haunting of Hill House, uh, Shirley Jackson, um, you know, I know it's a rote answer, but it is for a reason. It's the greatest Haunted House story ever told. Uh, her opening paragraph is the finest prose ever written in the English language, maybe. Um, I'm like mad hype on uh, the prose in Hill House. Um, I, I fall asleep to the audiobook sometimes. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I... Uh, you know, it was bouncing around Barker, obviously, uh, to to a degree. Um, a lot of the uh, more recent stuff that I'm into, uh, Christopher Buhlman's Between Two Fires, the medieval horror uh, thing from a few years ago, uh, really blew me away. Um, I, I uh, it's like a hundred years war, um, biblical apocalypse set during the bubonic plague story. It's, it's crazy yeah bleak dark heartwarming all that stuff um Gretchen Felker Martin's Manhunt um also kind of recent novel uh and then other than that just uh, you know as I was coming up influence wise a lot a lot of the the standard ones you'd expect Gaiman of course uh like Sandman hugely influential uh if, hopefully uh, <laughs> um and all of his his novels uh his short stories and uh and then just a little bit here and there, I you know, I was never a big Dean Koontz guy, but I don't say that uh, with like criticism. I know he gets a lot of <laughs> a lot of easy hate, but no, I uh, I appreciate his stuff. So in in Haunting to the End, you're you're juggling a few different kinds of horror. You know, there's some found footage stuff in the first. You know, there's there's a ghost story. There's environmental disaster horror. How you kind of go about balancing all those flavors? Uh, you know, like like an idiot who's put one too many plates on uh, on sticks on the stage and spinning them as fast as I can. I, I joke, you know, um, honestly, I I kind of knew how much I wanted the setting to be how it was and to do that eco horror. And because that was so 
baked in and hopefully in, in, in my head is so just close enough to home that it doesn't require, you know, it's not like a fully dystopian environment. Well, it's not a fully apocalyptic env environment, let's say, <laughs> um, that I, I just sort of hopefully let that, I felt like I was letting that inject and be the sort of backdrop for all the other horror and sort of like projecting uh, to be on theme, I hope, uh, uh, the other horrors onto that. You know, like the found footage stuff, I've always wanted to play with found footage uh, in the medium. Um, I know Michael Morisi and Christian Dabari on Hoax Hunters and, and a few other artists as well have, have done it. And I, and I think it it plays really well if you, you know, use it sparingly and are using it to sort of play with perspective and audience perspective and, and perception. Um, so I'm I'm trying to have that sort of be the punch. And then I'm, I'm, I'm an ambient horror guy. You know, I, um, jump scares obviously are trickier in comics, but I, I try not to rely on that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I can get behind a good gross out gore fest as much as the next guy. But, uh, in terms of what, what I like to explore, right. I, I like, I, I like subtler, uh, more like slowly building dread and, and ambient nightmares and that sort of, uh, pulling the rug out from somebody and giving them the big scare right then, right when they, you know, either think they're safe or, or things are a little hopeful or uh, that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to juggle that while keeping the pace steady. And then the moment, hopefully the reader realizes that things are sort of really frightening and, and bleak and then they're at their worst. They, they didn't expect it coming and they're like, Oh, it was so coastal, but now I'm, I'm stuck. It's bad news. I also kind of get and of course you can yell at me when I'm wrong, but there, there, <laughs> there's a Jurassic Park vibe to this. So you've got this cast of characters from different, you know, filling the different archetypes. You've got the eccentric rich person, the skeptic, the doctor, the muscle, uh, et cetera, going to this dangerous island named Isla something. And the bad vibes start before the plane even touches down. And then that made me, but that made me wonder aloud. Why aren't dinosaur ghosts a thing? Okay. So I, here's the thing. Okay, what is crude oil? If not love it, persevering. It, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God damn it. Uh, that, <laughs> that, that meme format is never going to die. Uh, it's going to be on people's tombstones, ironically and unironically. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be on whatever form of social media we're using uh, decades from now. Uh, it, that meme perseveres. Uh <laughs> um oh oh but uh you know, i really early on you know i didn't want to uh i try i don't think of myself as a didactic creator um obviously i i have pretty staunch leftist views and my book is an environmental horror book and uh that is inherently political etc cetera, etc cetera, but I'm, i don't want my storytelling to be didactic if i can get mm -hmm. away with it um so the you know the oil derrick stuff uh that will uh spoiler alert come into play later uh, was always sort of again part of this this setting and the and the environment that I wanted to explore, but but really early on I was like the dinosaur ghost thing. I was like, well, what what crude oil like is just it's dead dinosaurs, like you know, like it is just it's it's that that carbon. We are we power we power our vehicles with dead dinosaurs. The the whole sort of joke thing. And I was like, well, I don't know. Can can it be haunted? You know, are the are the dinosaur ghosts in the oil? Uh, is that like 
the blood of the world? Uh, I don't know. Uh, these are all things that I was sort of asking in the early planning stages when I sort of hit on that. And uh, I play with some of them later on. But uh, that is, I guess that's my long roundabout answer to the dinosaur ghost question is that, that you know, the dinosaurs bodies turned into sedimentary rock and, and turned into oil. And uh, that oil is not not haunted, at least not at Isla Lodo. Um, uh, but oh, uh, back to Jurassic Park. Uh, you know, uh, I'll I'll take that as a compliment. I, I love Jurassic Park. Um, I, I I do see all those connections. Uh, it's funny. I I definitely wrote to the Jurassic Park soundtrack a few times. Uh, I I'm always worried that like, uh, with Infinite Dark as well. We we me and Andrea joked about this and had this worry. I always just am like people are gonna say Alien or Aliens or or Prometheus. Um, because that influence on sci-fi horror is like un unavoidable um and and it's just like so permeates uh the genre and like i'm not gonna lie it's it's a huge influence on every everything i do that even touches that part of the medium so uh like you know i, I can't pretend i'm not this book is not influenced by alien uh i got a poster on my wall uh but J jurassic park 2 because that soundtrack is killer to write to um the question actually set me off down a path. So if you yeah. will, I found this article from reputable site I just heard of, higgypop.com, which says, <laughs> the major factor that would rule out the possibility of seeing dinosaur ghosts is the fact that ground level has changed a lot since dino times, hence their fossils generally being found deep underground. So if the ghosts of dinosaurs were still wandering around, they'd be doing it underground. The tallest dinosaur was 19 meters high. The Jurassic era layer of rock about 150 meters deep. So you're unlikely to see the ghost of a Brachiosaurus's head popping above ground level. So while we see human ghosts, the underground mole people see get to see the ghost dinosaurs and we don't. Mystery solved place closed. <laughs> we never see bird ghosts. We never see that I that response threw me for iggypop.com to the the genuine calculations of the maths of depths i'm i'm sold i um i might have to make some revisions to the uh, issue five script now that, that that's a thinker but but like that's great like that supposes that there's like you know like we have a stratosphere and an ionosphere now there's like different spheres of like what ghosts gets to haunt you the uh the ectosphere if you yeah. will the, the bird uh, well, ghostosphere the ghostosphere. well but that and then and then you have to go to the like uh and then you start really overthinking if you get scientific you're like well but our planet's always in motion so like our ghosts just like stuck in space like and then our our planet's in motion our galaxy's in motion so like do go our ghosts just floating around as the earth moves beyond them stuck in the vacuum um <laughs> It's like when you have to question. account for time travel, like time and yeah. also oh, yeah, the, yeah. the rotation of the Earth. Also, the real question is this. Most believe that ghosts are things with unfinished business. What kind of unfinished business do most dinosaurs have? Would the thing that they have unfinished business with be with other dinosaurs? And when they're all dead, it's like, oh, well, fuck. Well, I mean, when the meteor hit, they most of them were probably in the middle of something <laughs> true but again they were probably in the middle of something with other dinosaurs so when they well, all died was it all like oh, oh we're a bunch of ghosts okay we're gonna just have to interact as ghosts and then 
head into the light or is, is all this co2 is this dinosaur ghost just like fuck you mammals payback slow steady payback uh well i don't know but you, you make an interesting point if it's if it's unfinished business or vengeance the, all the other dinosaurs are dead there's still one bit of unfinished business they got to get back at that asteroid they got to wage war against meteors we just wrote a book gentlemen yeah <laughs> diamond top 100 easy i'd uh, like to believe that ghost dinosaurs were helping the the that crew of, of miners in armageddon <laughs> unfortunately on the opposite end they were they were uh antagonists in the core uh <laughs> <laughs> um no you know i i um <laughs> I, I like we're all joking. I, I I love the kind of stuff, but I you know I I as uh as open a whole other can of worms. But as like a I, I prefer to think about like ghosts in the same way that I think about my Star Wars, which is like if you try to to like min max or mathematize or even like basic logic, the magic it's it's over. Like you, the magic has been foiled. Like it just needs it is just magic, uh, and you can't like assign rules to it it will never be scientific and so the dinosaur ghosts still get to be on the surface of the earth darn it and they will be spinning along with us at the proper rotation even though we're light years away from where we're supposed to be and as you say their unfinished business with other dinosaurs i don't know yeah maybe it's just mammal revenge and those clouds have no midichlorians because <laughs> screw that <laughs> no sir oh boy so now now that we know where ryan stands on the subject of midichlorians uh what what is what is something that you feel like you have learned about making comics since infinite dark Ooh, wow hey that's a really good question um you know i on infinite dark i thought i was 100 percent collaborative and trusting my artist i thought that my script style was purely conversational i thought that i was like really sharing the reins and not being particular not being really overworthy and you know it's funny you ask i i um just three or four months ago i, I was going back and, and i reread an infinite dark script because i was like trying to find some material for some stuff and i i was like oh my god who is this wordy asshole who is this guy who does not trust the artist anywhere near as much as he thinks he does um, and it, you know, it's like all those little refinements. It's like, uh, and I'm sure every, every creator has things that they are sensitive about in their own work. I'm, I'm always like, okay, I, I always hyper. I'm like, I cannot be one of those wordy sci-fi horror writers. Like I really have to trim down every bit of dialogue, like bare minimum, bare minimum, trim the fat, trim the fat, trim the fat. And it, it, it doesn't matter how, how much I, you know, I try or how many drafts I go through. You know, as you grow one one more year, six months, you know, even even recently, you know, the, the more you improve, the more you look back and you're like, I could have said that with one less word. And, you know, that one word will. Oh, sorry, I have to do this, guys. That one word will haunt me to the end. Um, no, I, I, I didn't I didn't want to do that. I, I just it, it I had to let it out. You know, you guys get it. You know, it was, it, was it had to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, but yeah, you know, really is just it's. I think the thing I've hopefully learned is to shut up a little more, uh, ironically enough. Um, maybe some people disagree. Maybe Andrea would disagree. Uh, but I, uh, I, I hope I am. I am speaking 
as only when necessary to convey the right amount of inspiration. Which was a tougher topic to research, the heat death of the universe or climate disaster? <laughs> um, you know, ooh, uh, I, I do have a little bit of a soapbox for this, actually, if I may. Um, I, uh, you know, a lot of my friends, uh, pretty much most of my friends are are, are very pessimistic. Um, you know, there's a sort of, uh, it's in the air right now. Um, in general, there are a lot of people who, you know, are, are doomers. You know, uh, I use the word doomer a couple times in Hot You to the End because it's it's such a good slang it, it, and it just, it feels applicable to a lot of people right now. Uh, we all sink into it sometimes. But um, my sort of, I guess, position on the human race here and the reason I made Infinite Dark, uh, or at least why I sort of, I'm okay with infinite dark working the way it is, is that I, um, I really do think we're going to make it. Um, I am fundamentally incredibly optimistic about the human race. Um, I do not think, and I know this is laughable, uh, but I do not think it's a stretch that we might make it to the end of the universe. I don't, I don't think that's that crazy. I, am constantly in awe and impressed with what humanity does. Um, and I know I get, uh, I get, I get some, not black, but a lot of people are, you know, my work is like quote unquote bleak, but to me that, that bleakness is just the, the reality in the middle of the silver lining donut, I guess. Uh, and, and so where that relates to the like climate change heat death thing, um, unfortunately I am pessimistic about the next, you know, two to 300 years. Uh, I, I, I worry. Um, I, I don't, especially the more I was researching. Uh, and now, of course, obviously, science changes, there's all sorts of new tech, things can be more, more hopeful. But but in the, you know, in doing the research on climate change, and, and our environment and our, our near future and the, the situations we're in, I came away uh, a much more uh, a bit of a bit of a bummer, uh, more than than my, um, my heat death research. Um, and Again, I, I do think that that this planet and our species and, and ultimately these things will survive. I think we will endure. But I am I'm very worried about what the next 200 years or so are going to look like. And uh, I, I don't feel super optimistic about about them. But again, ultimately, I do kind of see us on that Star Trek timeline. I really am like, we're going to make it, guys. Like we're we're destined to be there. I don't know. I'm sure that's speciesist in some ways, but uh, I don't know. It's just how I feel. It, it's like the inverse of that. Comedians are the angriest people in their personal <laughs> lives. You write the bleakest <laughs> stuff, but have this optimistic core. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it's actually, it's funny you said this, this signing this week, I said something about being really stressed or whatever. And uh, a guy that I, you know, I don't see that I see, you know, only when I go down to San Diego, he was like, Oh man, you hide it really well. You seem like you're really cheery. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, "This is you didn't like this is really." He's like pointing out the book. He's like, "Oh, this is really where you're at, huh?" Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> we all float down here. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. So the the first issue of Haunt You to the End, obviously, you know, you're introducing the cast, you're setting the table for what's to come, you're starting the ticking clock. Who is the best character and why is it Gersh? <laughs> well, okay, correct question. Uh, a very, <laughs> very rarely correct question. Uh, 
Gersh is amazing. Um, uh, Gersh, I found like I I think personally, I really hit the sweet spot between like the hard bitten badass trope and like what it would be like to really deal with somebody like that in this situation um where you're just kind of like god why is she such a jerk but why is she so good at her job and like i i don't know i um i love gersh i i love gersh so much that i absolutely uh fit uh snake plissken easter eggs into her scenes uh and when i when i sent the script to andrea and we were talking about it he was like, yeah, so I have some ideas about design, blah, blah. And I was like, Andrea, no, 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 no. Have you seen Terminator Dark Fate? And he's like, no. And I'm like, me either. But if you watch the trailer and look at Linda Hamilton in that movie, that's what Gersh is. Um, and that's that's where where she came from. Uh, and I, I uh, she is absolutely a character who uh, I was worried. I knew this would happen, uh, but it happened anyway, where as I'm writing more and more as we get further into it she's getting more and more page space and i'm like oh no she's really threatening to take over this thing i can't help it she's too cool uh so uh yes correct question gersh gersh is the best character um i i have uh in issue three especially uh i have some gersh moments i'm really proud of but i could say that about every issue because she's that cool um but otherwise you know um to to give the rundown on the others you know uh we've got Callum Shaw, um, our eccentric uh, Pakistani British industrialist who is the the guy funding it all, the eccentric billionaire making it all happen. Um, and I, I like, I really wanted him to <laughs> look kind of kind of messed up, um, kind of like definitely like a creepy old, uh, you know, rich guy, like a guy who would be in one of these houses rather than buying them. And Andrea kind of drew him in this way. And I didn't really notice it until somebody said something kind of early on, but he's like, he does kind of give us Crypt Keeper vibes. And so like, now that I know he can, I'm like, he looks ghoulish. So it makes me want to write him even a little more sentimental. Um, but I, you know, for the attitude of this guy, I'm like, well, like, what do I think, uh, based on our timeline, a, a young millennial today is going to be like if they grow up to be a billionaire and, and try to like explore what that guy would be. Um, and then our sort of POV character, uh, Matt Park, um, is a sort of washed up social media journalist. Um, you know, I, I've written for alt weeklies. Um, I, I've done a lot of journalism and obviously, you know, like I'm a working writer today. I'm totally freelance. Um, and Matt, Matt Park is kind of like, I think, at least in my head, he's a cautionary tale character. Like Matt Park is what happens when you like you you let yourself get beaten down and you make the bad choices and you embrace the dystopia and you just play for snarky likes and you write shitty clickbait articles and you sort of like give up your life to being like a snarky internet famous prick because it seems like the only way to get your shit out there and, and to get the creative work you need and then you know you're in you're, you're at the point where you should really, your career should be taking off. And then instead the world is ending and you, uh, you know, you, your career isn't taking off. So you got to go work for a crazy billionaire uh, and, and hopefully not die on a ghost island. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, and then, uh, you know, rounding up the cast, we have um, Dr. Madison O'Connell, who is another really, really big supporting character. She is a United Nations like disaster relief corps doctor. Um, so she has like 
tons of first all of her experience and training is in is in these climate change nightmare zones so she's ideal for a for a job like this um but she's only on it because uh shah has purchased her med school debt um and is sort of like shanghai her into this expedition although she perhaps has uh reasons of her own for being there i will say um uh, and then uh, we haven't really seen in the first issue, except in the found footage section, Padre Domingo Sandoval, who is uh, Kalm Shah, the spiritual advisor on the mission. Uh, I, I think uh, there's not one, you'll notice in every haunted house story, there isn't always a priest. There isn't always like a religious figure character. Um, but I just think I really find them endearing in stories like this, whether they get tormented or they survive, whether they're good or bad. I really do think the sort of, religious figure character in the midst of the haunted house is always fun to play around with and I, I always want them there so uh readers will meet him more in depth in the second issue um but but he is a sort of uh possibly a, a phony a famous tv televangelist preacher who is now accompanying this billionaire on his ghost hunting expeditions how much fun was making up near future history that characters get to make offhand references to without having to explain? So, for example, you mentioned Gersh has a purple heart from St. Augustine. And I, as the reader, I'm like, oh, shit, did we miss World War Three? Don't worry about it. It's not relevant to the story. <laughs> I, that is the most fun. And like learning, you talk about like, what have I learned and how much have I have grown? Like in Infinite Dark, in Infinite Dark Days, I would probably be tempted to not like explain everything but only to reference things that could like really obviously be put together for like oh they, they don't you don't even have to guess you can see that through line and like now sort of being like no like this this shit is what works being like yeah the mandatory california evacuation well why and when and who ordered it and why you know it doesn't look that bad why and it's like i don't know it's probably air quality don't worry about it you know it's people can you're smart you can you can you can put the thoughts together and more than that you can sort of fantasize i mean for example going back to our earlier stuff before you saw attack of the clones when you were like the fucking clone wars what the fuck is that shit whoa that's gotta be nuts you know and like yeah whatever we don't need to turn this podcast into a discussion about attack of the clones uh a movie that happens uh well, we already but... said the m word midichlorians so we're, <laughs> yeah, half, we're halfway there the real trouble <laughs> Uh, next comes sand, um, but but yeah, but but I, I I think about like that is the uh, I know some creators call it reverse reverse foreshadowing rather than like planting seeds because it's more like not you're not even planting seeds you're sort of just like oh wait I can go back into a thing and turn that into something or or this can be a little thing and I won't think about it but but maybe later on I'll I'll really even if I don't put it into the work I'll put a whole imaginary thing there or like the Pacific Rim desolation. Isn't that, isn't that like in my head, I was like, it's more fun to keep it vague and ominous. What is this storm? As opposed to like, well, when the three category five hurricanes that leveled Los Angeles met at the center of Sacramento, you know, like, I, I don't know, like you said, sort of, of making up near future things and being like in my head, well, I'm just going to vaguely imagine that as the most badass version of how I phrased it. And I, I feel like the reader probably will, too, because that's what's fun. So like the Clone Wars. <laughs> It's it, it's like when Bishop came back in time and joined the X-Men and he mentioned the Summer's Rebellion. And you're like, this sounds like the coolest fucking thing. And then Peter David writes it 15, 20 years later, however long it was. I'm like, oh, it was literally just a Cyclops cyborg and his daughter. <laughs> are you uh, are you by the way, I know um, I feel like everyone on Comics XF, I feel like I always see 
Cyclops takes from you guys? Where 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 do we stand on Scott? Are you are you two Scott haters? Where are we at? We're we're a, we're a pro Cyclops podcast. We're pro Cyclops podcast. Okay, all right. <laughs> I um, I gotta say I don't much care for the man, but I understand him, and I think I I often see some of my own faults in Scott Summers, and I am like, get your shit together, you jerk. You're such a you're such a schmuck. You're no fun. Let Wolverine have fun, man. <laughs> okay uh anyway i just thought i i think it's important to establish where everyone yeah. stands on Cyclops, it is right it absolutely that's, that's is uh, it should be on your your papers that you fill out at the dmv listen i i am a i am i won't say the world's biggest batman fan but if, if you love batman it's hard to take shots at scott it's, it's it's really the same the same path that's fair yeah you know that's true i guess well now we we all very much criticize batman for this all the time now but i i, I guess batman still gets to be cool whereas i don't like even even cyclops defenders would you would you say scott's a cool guy no <laughs> no i'm a shameless cyclops he has his moments <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean for sure he's not like he's not lame he's just n- no fun i guess. i don't know yeah but scott has his happiest moment when he is on the moon grilling for his entire weird ass extended family scott summers has wanted to be a middle-aged dad since he was 16 Really, really, from the jump, he was like, can we skip over all of this? Uh, I need a sweater vest and a disapproving expression. But it makes sense, because his dad is the raddest fucking dude alive. So, of course, you're like, well. And his kid is Cable, so it skips a generation. (laughs) All over the place. Summer's Family Therapy. That's, I'd love to, that's a book to write. I would read that book. That's, a, that's an assistant editor's month title. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so you've done a lot of work for Top Cow. Have you in, ever interacted with Mark Silvestri, the tallest man in comics? Bigfoot himself. Uh, <laughs> he comes in in sunglasses looking like a tall celebrity. It's awesome. Uh, no, I, 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 I love Mark. Um, I, I, yeah, I've interacted with him plenty over the years. You know, I, I, um, I, I, was, I was an editor at Top Cow for a long time. Um, so I was in the office and stuff. Um, the sweetest dude, so nice, so soft-spoken for how like tall he is and how much of a like presence he has when he enters a room, uh, and like watching him draw is insane. Some of those, some of those people from back then, I'm, I mean, people that, Hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm a sh- motherfucker sitting over here, like typing my words. Uh, so it's all magic to me. Uh, but, but some, you know, he, he is one of those artists that, it is it is mist it is hypnotic when you watch him go. You're like, wow, I could just sit here all day. I I, I fantasize uh, the bullpen was long before my time, but the idea of just when Top Cow had that bullpen of all these just talented artists just sitting there drafting all day, and you could just like zone out on the beautiful art. Oh, a dream. You've also worked on some of Z2's music comics with artists like Poppy, Machine Gun Kelly, Sublime. What what goes into those? You know, what's different about doing comics about or with musicians that's different from like typical licensed work? Well, hugely. Um, you know, uh, 
and every it's all those examples actually were all radically different experiences um you know it, it varies much depending on the musician um like poppy especially you know she and i uh really collaborated on, on all of the graphic novels we've done for them and we've done a lot of other stuff we you know we're working together on some other projects we are very much uh, sort of creative partners on that stuff and it feels very much like bouncing off each other and co-writing um and and just really sort of into crafting a project together uh likewise uh machine gun kelly you know he's he's actually like a huge comics fan he has like a saga tattoo he has like a he has a pull list every week he's always like down to talk about stuff and uh we would you know get on calls and talk about what he liked and we would pitch ideas uh, and that was more of like a a more traditional almost like working with a licensor but instead of a licensor it's one guy uh and you know after you talk about the book he wants to ask what your opinion on you know this like this issue of ice cream man was um and you know it's sort of nice and uh and the sublime one is probably more what people expect when they pick up these graphic novels um it is a bio book uh i worked with a label um, I was given access to tons of research materials to spool through, uh, which was was really nice. That's like uh, one of the coolest things about a book like that is that you just get so much access to history that you're not going to read anywhere. Um, but that was more of a, a traditional bio book. I, all my article, my drafts were submitted through the label, round of people approving this and that, going through meeting expectations, making a book for a client like a licensor. Um, but again, the the coolest thing about these books, obviously, the access of like, oh, this person has such a huge voice, you know, so many people who wouldn't have um, read my stories, you know, everything else aside, just because they're not people in this market are now going to get exposed to it. But more than that is that, you know, in a book like that, you can you can work with any, you know, some amazing artists, um, I mean, uh, Amo Carpina. Uh, excuse me. Um, well, the late Ian McGinty, actually, um, mm. rest in peace, man. Uh, he he and I were on that first Poppy book together. Um, and, and really just uh, if you look at really those Z, the Z2 books, uh, you really if you look at any of those books, the, the art teams on those are incredible. And, you know, it's, you know, the, the, half the time, you know, these artists, everyone at Sublime, like Hayden Sherman. Um, I think we have a, we have a Mothwood print in there, I think. But, um, but you know, every, everybody was, you know, fans of this stuff. And so you can get artists that, you know, are maybe harder to get on certain projects or, or wouldn't have the time of day or just very busy to be like, well, fuck, I, I love this guy. I'd love to work on a book for him. So that that was really the the, the coolest thing about those is, is being able to work with some some really incredible talents. And so you've, you've done some work for DC2 and, you know, we're talking horror and you wrote a couple of Jessica Cruz stories, uh, an annual and a short in Future State that deal with Jessica and the, uh, the Sinestro Corps. Yeah. How much of your horror-ness do you want to, do you, do you find able to bring into that kind of story? Because the Sinestro Corps are an intrinsically horror concept. This was, uh, I loved doing Yellow Lantern Jessica Cruz stuff. Um, you know, I, uh, when Sammy Bosry and I like first were collaborating on that, on that, uh, that first future state thing where it was just the short and we were like, can we put her in the uniform? Can we really have her in the uniform holding the thing? Are we allowed to do that even if it's just at the end and, and the fighting for it and, and, you know, editorial being into it, but not sure that they could sell it and people would be okay with it. Um, and, and, you know, so I didn't want to push, um, and I, 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 I've since talked to a lot of Jessica Cruz fans who were like, their first reaction was like, no, you can't make her a villain. Oh, that's crazy. And I was like, I never said she's a bad guy. 
like it my, my whole thinking was that you know like horror even if it's ex whether it's extreme or ambient or or like goosebumps for kids ultimately you know it is always a two-way street and it's not about the extremity of what you show it's it's about the the power of the the ambition or excuse me the emotion that you're sort of stoking you know and if you can play with that in lots of different ways and, and what i want to do is talk about how it's kind of an empathy machine and, and i wanted to show ways that you could use horror for good and, and fear for good and, and channel that into that take on the character and I, I you know as someone uh you know i'm an anxious guy um most of the time and i uh i work on these really scary fucked up stuff when i when i'm allowed to uh and and but i'm you know i i think there's a there's a way to channel that fear or those feelings. You can, I wanted to really explore that with Jessica because she's obviously anxiety is so much a part of her thing. And I, as much as I love Green Lanterns, Green Lanterns are some of my favorite stuff in, in DC. And I do think there's a lot to be said for the willpower and overcoming fear. I, I think there's also something to be said that like, hey, I own this fear. Like this is a part of me. This this horror is is real and it is powerful and I can use it too. And that's not wrong. I can process it. Um, but But horror stuff is hard to do at the big two. Uh, for sure. Um, I am, I'm always like slavering at the bit for a chance to do it. I, um, I did a couple of those Batman, uh, urban legend books last year. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I loved the question one that we got to do. And I, I loved being able to do, uh, Mr. Freeze and Captain Cold. Um, and I think that book turned out amazing, but what I really wanted to do was another horror thing. I was like, can we please, I just want to get really spooky. And it's, you know, you, you have to rein in obviously because these are superhero monthly books they are not ryan katie's personal horror experience yet uh but but there is sort of that you have to you don't want to alienate the audience obviously but also you know you you want to know where you can take this character and what emotions you can expose them to in ways that feel natural and also are are within the given parameters of the book right i i am one of those jessica cruz fans who that idea really grew on me as it I read through it because it makes sense. Uh, and you sort of answered my next question, which is about how much fun it was to write the question because I freaking love that story and Dude. I love oh, the thank question. You. Thank you. Uh, I, 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 I fucking love the question. Vic Sage, I like Renee Montoya a lot. Like it is neck and neck, but I just love uh, every version of Vic Sage. Um, obviously, that, that early. I always forget the title of the annual where it's, uh, you know, the green arrow question. Um, Detective uh, parables. It's is a... it the, yeah, parables. I think you're right. Parables. Yeah. I believe it like, is. Yeah. That, that huge, hugely. I think I picked that up at like some free comic book day sale. There was like a bundle pack with them. And I'm like, Oh, I think the question's cool. And I, I flipped through that really young and I'm like, this is, I am into this. Mm. Uh, and then obviously the, the DCAU stuff, uh, the Jeffrey Combs question was like, to me, really rounded out where I was like, this is like the coolest detective to me to like, this is one of the coolest characters to me. He is very far up there. Um, and so getting to write him and getting able to like, just do bits and play, because obviously the, the, that whole story is all just about detective work and comparing him and Batman. So we just literally got to do, what's the difference between Batman and the question bits? for like 12 straight pages. <laughs> uh, oh, and actually that that's another one. Um, we also, the this uh, shout out to Dave Wilgos, the, who was the editor on that project. He, he was the one who had the idea. I think it, it really only shows up in like one or two panels in our story, 
but that our story is sort of in response to the first issue of the question where he gets beat up by mobsters and thrown into the bay and Batman has to save him and is like, what are you doing? You have no face. You 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 don't know how to fight. You tried to take on six guys with guns. You're drowning. Are, you're not a detective. Get your shit together. Um, and so Dave was like, yeah, let's like really like explore that wherever we can. And so that was shout out to him for really letting us fully round out Vic in that story. Do you ever miss the Gonzo food journalism game? <laughs> Just yesterday, as I was walking through my Ralph's grocery store, I noticed that once again, the Lay's do us a flavor challenge is upon us. Oh no. And every time, every time the Lay's do us a flavor challenge is upon us, I think about getting back in the game. Um, those <laughs> those chips this year I think is Buffalo chicken sandwich, which is pretty normal. Um, and then I saw another one that was uh like annoyingly normal. I don't know what it was, but it was like some take on like cheese sauce or something. And I'm like, get out of here, that's not a challenge. But there's always a third one that's like fucking crazy. Uh, the Greek tzatziki one uh, that I, I know I specifically had to try for one of my articles when I was writing for the OC Weekly. Uh, we eat it so you don't have to was the uh, <laughs> the, the column. Um, but yeah, I I, um, I miss it. My body doesn't miss it. Um, <laughs> you know, once we the, I think one of the very last assignments I ever did was three orange OC Weekly writers uh were all went to this food challenge where you had to drink like a gallon of milk tea um no boba just the tea mm-hmm. um and we get down there and we're going and they're like oh yeah what's like they're all just like before we get there no one's like really eating all day and we're all kind of like ripping everyone's saying like their favorite drinks like what do you get at both place? what do you get and i'm kind of being like i don't really get milk tea and they're like yeah have you had milk tea and i'm like I feel like I've had it. I don't really remember it. Yeah, you know, whatever. And, and I'm like, I, I probably just get like a strawberry slushie. And we get down there and they give us these these gallon jugs of milk tea. And I'm sure it was very, very good milk tea. But I took like one sip and I was like, immediately I remembered the flavor. And I'm like, oh, this stuff is way too sweet. I don't like this at all. Um, and I drank most of a gallon of it and got really sick. Uh, and that is, that is like, it's time to tap out, kid. You can't be in this game any longer. <laughs> Getting too old for this shit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but there is always that that sort of like when you see when I see a crazy food item, I'm like, should I eat this as a private citizen, <laughs> or is it time? To, can I justify? Can I excuse to myself eating this if I'm not going to get paid? <laughs> oh man. Well, uh, do you have any uh, signings or convention appearances coming up that you want to uh, plug? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I will be. Let's see. I'm doing one more Haunt You to the End signing this month. Uh, I'll be doing at the end of the month at Now or Never Comics in downtown San Diego. I think it's July 28th, the last or June. Sorry, June 28th, the last Wednesday in June. Um, And then in July, uh, I don't have any more firm signings planned. But at San Diego Comic-Con, I will be at the Top Cow booth. I think I have at least one signing every day there. So we're we're promoting the book heavy. We've got uh, a con exclusive cover of uh, Sozo's variant. Nice. Um, and uh, likewise, I think we'll be announcing a new secret project that I am working on there with Top Cow. So. Very nice. Uh, penultimate question. What are you reading right now? Ooh, um, 
comics wise, uh, really, really into, if I may shout out my buddy, Steve Fox, um, and the dark horse book, uh, all eight eyes. Although, mm-hmm. uh, Steve is all over the place right now. He's killing it at Marvel and putting out another books. Uh, also, um, Bill CB, uh, artist buddy of mine is doing mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, we, we all like Venom. Venom is cool. We love we love Venom. Everybody likes Venom. There's a lot of no, not a lot of bad ways to do Venom, but but I think Phil Phil has some Venom stuff coming up at Marvel that that I have seen some of the some of the art on these strips that he's going to be doing on Unlimited, and it's it's killer stuff. Nice. Um, and then on on the on the DC side of things, um, I must as always shout out uh, you know Teeny Howard's work, especially Harley Quinn. This run is uh, wow. This Harley Quinn run is one of my favorites, and and her and Sweeney Boo are. Uh, or the team on that and I I just love it. Um yeah, I, those are my big my big comics ones right now. And then uh in terms of like novels, I <laughs> I am like embarrassingly entering, I joke to my friends, I'm entering my like grumpy dad era of reading. I'm like really into Bernard Cornwell like Saxon stories and like Napoleonic War master and commander stuff. Like very <laughs> very much like all right, get home, kick off my shoes, grab my dad beer, put on my dad sweater and kick back with uh, a very detailed description of an 1800s conflict. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, those are my, that's my, my big pop culture consumption era there. Right on. Well, Ryan, this has been a fantastic hour. Final question as we release you back into the world. How can people follow you online, keep up with Haunt You to the End and everything else that you have going on? Uh, well, uh, you know, normally I say Twitter. Um, I used to be very active on there. That ship is sinking, uh, but I will be going down with the ship haphazardly. So you can find me there at Rye Katie. Uh, and Instagram, which as far as I know, will be real for the, the incoming future is uh, I'm, I'm pretty active on there. Uh, Rye underscore Katie as well. Um, and then uh, my website is out of date. Don't trust it. It lies. Uh, but yeah, there and uh, Letterboxd. So if you care about my terrible movie opinions, those are there as well. Right on. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you guys. It's been a blast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a Pete Wisdom Hot Claw sticker designed by Kevin Newburn. A $3 donation gets you access to our bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $4 donation get you access to Our Son Pete and the sticker. A $25 donation lets you plug your crowdfunded or creator-owned comic in a 60-second spot. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis, Robert Secundus, Liz Large, and Will Nevin from ComicsXF, Carla Pacheco, Mike Sagawa, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. The Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF, assuming Twitter still works. And until next week, remember, somewhere out there, there's a Batman comic where all the characters simply cannot stop saying the word boner.
WNQA.